Blog Talk Radio. This is Pat Salber, and I want to welcome you to another podcast um, from The Doctor Weighs In on the radio. And we're going to talk about patience and digital health and how the patients can help to make digital health products be better for users. I have with me today Rebecca Lord, who is the Vice President of User Experience at Medulin. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Thank you. Okay, great. And it's a Boston-based digital health consultancy that um, improves patient experiences through human-centered solutions. And in that capacity, she's worked with a bunch of different companies to create tools um, that just plain work better for people. So I thought, Rebecca, uh, in my introduction, I had a lot of kind of insider jargon. I'm going to let you shine a light on some of those words. What exactly is UX, and what on earth does it mean to have human-centered <laughs> solutions? Sure. Thank you. Sure. So UX is um, the acronym for user experience, and that simply really is just the practice of creating solutions, digital solutions for for us, um, that are focused on real people and their needs. So what we do is get to the heart of of their needs by actually talking to people, understanding their their pains, their frustrations, their desires, their hopes, their dreams, and uh, creating solutions that address them. So how is what you're doing with patients any different from what drug companies, for example, have done for jillions of years, which is just to convene focus groups of whatever type of audience they want, doctors or patients or nurses or whatever. How how is what you're doing different? Sure. So focus groups, that's one example of getting to the heart of a person's need. Um, For us, it's it's a tool, but it's a suite of of lots of tools um, in our our research capabilities. Um, Focus groups tend to get a bad rap these days because it leads to groupthink. Um, so you're not getting you're not getting the personal story. You're not able to ask why and and go deep with one person on on their own personal experience. So we tend to prefer things like contextual interviews or ethnographic studies where we sit and spend long periods of time with people one on one and talk to them. Okay, tell wait, stop. You just threw out a couple of words there. Oh, great. So We're jargon. What's a contextual? Uh, what's a contextual? Um, is it a contextual interview? And sure. tell us about ethnographic yeah. studies. Sure. So I, I have an anthropology background, so I, I love throwing around <laughs> words like that. Um, a contextual interview is simply um, a period of time where we sit with one person and we pose um, specific questions that are scenario-based, right? So I could say, pretend for me um, that you're your um, doctor has prescribed you a certain drug and you're having trouble understanding when and how to take it. Um, and, then, and then probe deeper, listen to, their, listen to their explanations, ask them more questions and probe into the, the experience of, of that scenario for them. Um, ethnographic studies is, is, is very similar, but it's longer period of time and we can actually go into their um, their environment, their office, or their home, and watch them um, um, do the tasks that we have in mind. 
and, and stop and ask questions along the way. Well, that's good because I was wondering, um, you know, a lot of times when I hang out with people who make apps, when you talk about UX, it has to do with, well, was the button red or green or was it big mm-hmm. enough or, you know, too close to the other button so if you touched it, it, you know, something else happens. And that actually turns out to be, you know, important stuff too. Um, so how, are, are, you, are you actually involved with that type of UX or is it, is it really more, I mean, if you're observing somebody in there, in their in their work doing their duties is it is it is it more um at a different level of process flow so it's 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 involved i think of it as a a spectrum or a time frame perhaps the the example that you have watching someone um give feedback on if the button is big enough or if it's red enough or green enough is very far at the end of the research that we do in the process of creating a solution. That's the final details, the spit and polish, make sure that uh, everything is working appropriately and that it's a usable tool. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, it's the, the process of um, understanding the problem and starting to sketch out solutions to address those problems, figuring out if we're, we're working on the right problem in the first place even. And that's where talking to people and doing more of these in-depth interviews and conversation-based research is more useful. So can you make this real for us? Can you give us an example of um, a project that you've worked on where you've engaged people in this way? And and tell us a little bit, you don't have to name the company, but tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit about uh, what, what question you were trying to get answered and how the patients uh, or the whoever it was that you were working with helped you to get that answered, and what and what difference it actually made. Sure. So um, we were working with a company um, recently, and we have this product in pilot right now, which is really exciting. Um, the The idea was we need to create an app or some sort of solution that helps moms, new moms, um, determine whether or not their baby, their infant, has a possible milk allergy. Um, so this was the the big company came to us with this with this goal, and um, to get to the heart of it, what we needed to do was obviously talk to a lot of moms, um, and that's where the patient advocacy groups um, came in. They were a, a really um, good useful tool for us to find um, uh, a big a big basket full of moms to talk to, if you will. Um, in talking with those moms, we did those sorts of contextual interviews, like I mentioned before. We sat one on one with moms listened to their struggles um, of, of raising a baby, their first baby oftentimes at home, um, who are fussy, who aren't eating well, um, what that meant to their family, what kind of worry it was, it was causing them. Um, so we know um, that milk allergy is a thing, but what we're hearing is stories about moms who are just struggling with a newborn and, and not understanding what the problem is. Um, and what we found in those conversations was really that sense that they want to take some control of a situation that they're feeling desperate and in need and not not feeling like they're in control. Um, one of the one of the common um, complaints from moms that we spoke to was it's just taking so long the length of time that they sit with a fussy baby uh, months often um, before the doctor is able to diagnose a milk allergy is is really grueling and and concerning for them. Um, so that piece and, of information. And so, they, and so you learned that they wanted a, some kind of a solution for it, 
and that's what it sounds like you went ahead and built. So how how, how did you go from this is taking too long, I, I, I'd like to know sooner what's wrong with my baby, to mm-hmm. what what actually turned out to be the product? Sure, yeah. That's, so that's that's the fun part for me and my team, actually. Um, so we have these we have we have these walls full of what we call user pain or user struggles, and we think, what can we do to help them? Um, we're a pretty empathetic group, and we really just care. Um, so we start sketching on the whiteboards or on paper um, ways to address the needs of the moms. And what we love to do is to have some of those moms alongside, um, innovating with us, sketching with us, which is which is a huge luxury. Um, we tried to find at least a proxy if we couldn't find the ones um, that we had originally spoken to and really just start drafting some ideas, bringing it to life um, in, in visuals with markers and pencils and things like that. Um, and before we get too far into the process of, of refining and adding too many more ideas to our sketches, we stop and we ask for, for guidance and feedback um, from moms again. Um, for this particular project. So we went back out to our, our groups of, um, of patients, of moms, and conducted more interviews, dozens of them, um, now with something to show, a visual aid um, in the conversation. So we can dive deeper into the, into the conversation with them, say, for instance, um, would a screen like this um, answer the question that you have in mind, or would an activity that um, was in three, these three steps address um, the concern you have uh, and so, get their feedback. Um, so it's a pretty intense process, and it sounds like it's time-consuming. For you, I'm not so worried. That's your job but <laughs> for, these, for these moms. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you actually find these people. Um, I know that you work with patient advocacy groups. Talk about... Mm-hmm. Uh, what's involved in actually identifying and and getting the participation of of a patient to help you with these projects? And I'm also interested in timing. Um, when should they be engaged? When you first start talking about the project, uh, at the point when you get the pencils and the markers, uh, you mm-hmm. know, sometime later, kind of kind of build the story for us. Sure. So first, we like to to talk to patients or users or whomever the the, the audience is um, very early and throughout the entire process. So when when a company, because we are a, a digital, digital firm, when a company comes to us with an idea or a, a, a you know a business idea, we one of the first questions we ask is who is it for and and what problem are you aiming to solve? And before we go very far into what is the thing that we're going to make, we stop and go find those people. Who is it for? And talk to them and ask. And how do you find them? So the how um, is lots of times we use, um, there there are many different ways. We we use recruiting firms. So there are some really great companies out there. um, That are just trying to connect patients with, uh, with, with people like you? There are some that are patient focused and then there are some that are um, very broad. Um, you can even use um, survey tools like SurveyMonkey that they'll have panels of people, um, just <laughs> regular human beings um, that you can um, sort and refine to get to the type of person that you need the most. Um, and are these people who just want to do it out of the goodness of their heart, or do you have to pay them? <laughs> you do have to pay them. Some people, the those that we find from patient advocacy groups at times, 
um, will do it out of the goodness of their heart because they're giving, they feel like they're giving back um, to their community, which is wonderful, and we appreciate that. Um, but time, time is valuable for all of us, so we understand that. And even if we ask for an hour of their time on a telephone, um, we do offer some sort of incentive. Um, it could be as little as, as 10 or $25, but we will offer something. And um, do you ever? We, we we know that we know that we have a recent high-profile example of mm-hmm. uh, using incentives to get people to do something they didn't want to do with the United Airlines uh, debacle. Um, and and what we learned from that is, if you don't come up with enough money, you have to go higher. Do you do you get into a bidding process ever when you really need to get the patients, but you can't get them for twenty-five dollars? <laughs> Right. So it's it, I wouldn't necessarily call it a bidding process, but it's trial and error and it's about the length of time for us. So we do sometimes work on on fairly aggressive schedules and we want to make sure we're learning fast and creating solutions as quickly as we can to get them out so that they can help people. Uh, so the time that it takes to recruit um, great candidates for research um, can be lengthy and one way of shortening that time period is by increasing the incentive. So our recruiting firms will say, gee, you know, it's taking more than a couple of weeks for you to get this, you know, specific kind of physician, for instance, that you're looking for, or this patient who has a, you know, particularly rare disease that you're you're looking to learn more about. Um, do you want to offer a higher incentive and see if, if that attracts more people um, sooner? So that's the, the kind of trial and error that we go through. And so it sounds like getting the patients, actually, even though it may be time-consuming, isn't an impossible hurdle um, because you can you, you have a bunch of different channels that you can use, right. uh, ranging from the advocacy groups to these recruiting companies. And we talked exactly. before we went on the air about a company named WeGo, which actually does um, have a huge numbers of patients who are disease-specific that um, he helps, uh, the, the, the founder um, helps, those patients to connect with brands. So it's a little bit different than what you're doing, but still, you know, kind of on the same line of getting the patient mm-hmm. voice in there. So this is relatively new. It's a lot of work. I'm assuming in some cases it could be costly. How do you know that you are getting something um, from all of this? It sounds good, but if you actually assessed the impact of involving patients in a concrete way so you can say, you know, this product would not have been as good as it is now if we hadn't engaged the patient voice. Sure. So for us, it's a given, <laughs> to be honest, that that if you're designing a product of any kind, you know, be it toothbrushes or cars or digital applications, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. If you're designing a product for a person, you should get to know the person. Um, and the product in the end will be better and more useful to that person. But wait, I want to I want to challenge you on that a little bit mm-hmm. because you're actually not designing the product for a person. You're actually designing right. the product for a group of people who may have a common interest. In the case of the example that you gave us, moms who exactly. have fussy babies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the one of the problems that I've seen in healthcare in general, um, and I used to see it when I worked with health plans on health policy issues, is is they would they would go out and it'd be a bunch of like health plan executives sitting around the table, and then they would bring in the patient voice, and they would mm-hmm. bring in one person, and oftentimes it was the same person. Right. So how 
how do you know that you've um, I, I agree with you that it sounds like it shouldn't work, but given that people are so different, um, my question again is how do you know that this actually, I mean, we want it to work, but how do you know that it actually works sure. given the limitations of you can't ask every single mom with a fussy baby. You're going to have to have a sample of some sort that's representing all those voices. Exactly. Exactly. And and finding that sample, it's not as challenging as one might think. You can find some pretty interesting or valuable um, trends, which will lead you to some insights um, pretty quickly. Um, some of our some of our work really just starts with a sample of of six to eight um, patients at first, and we'll find some interesting trends. And those are the ones that we start with in our early sketches. And then when we go back out with ideas. Um, to another six or eight, we, we may learn something more, um, but it's iterative, and, and we're learning as we go, and we know the solution because we're getting feedback from those patients week after week or month after month. Um, we know that it's evolving over time into something that, it, that would be valuable. Um, and but our, so, our, but I'm coming back again to this, how do you know it, sure. it works? Because if you look at drug development, um, <clears throat> people, the, the drug companies do a lot of clinical trials, and then at some point, they've convinced a, you know a body, the FDA, that mm-hmm. uh, they've done enough to think that it works and that it's probably safe, um, and they throw it out there into the into the world. And once they throw it out there into the world, of course, they start getting feedback and learning a whole bunch of things that they didn't know, despite the fact that they had huge clinical trials. I mean, that's right. the way the world works. So if you have six to eight patients and you get your product out there, maybe you have 10 or 20 patients and you get your product out there, would one way that you could determine how how effective bringing in the patient voice early be, um, how much post-market feedback and changes you have to make? And have you had that experience? Sure. So actually one one of the things that we do at the beginning of any engagement is to ask our our client, um, what are their measures of success? How will they know if this thing that they're they have, this idea that they have um, is valuable in the long run? And there are lots of ways um, to measure success from a from a user perspective. Um, we often look at things like usage just usage statistics, um, um, referrals of the application, or or social shares. You know how many times. Someone, someone liked this particular application, how many times they come back to the application and use it, um, customer satisfaction scores, things like that, that are, um, it's analytics, it's measurable information. Um, so that's how we know in the end if the application is, is working for people. Um, we can choose one of those measures and just track it over time. One of the cool things that we do is to say, okay, if it's not if it's not as high, you know, if the customer satisfaction scores are not as high as we had hoped in the first month after launch, let's go back um, to the drawing board and see what we can do to address that. Um, and again, and, bring in um, patients. We're kind of coming to the end of our time, but I was hoping that you could tell me uh, one or two things that um, stick out in your mind as changes that you made because you got um, feedback from patients, like the button did go from green to yellow or you mm-hmm. know, some, something concrete that we can um, start to understand the, the um, magnitude, I sure. guess, or the importance Absolutely. of the changes. Right. Well, and because you mentioned buttons, I'll, I'll mention this um, one anecdote. 
is again back to the the app that helps moms um, um, determine if their baby may have an allergy. One of the one of the features of that app was for the moms to be able to track the um, the sleeping patterns and the the mood of their baby and um, what they're eating and the diaper patterns as well. And lots of times, moms will have to measure this in the middle of the night because <laughs> babies are 24-hour creatures. And if they wake up and have um, a feeding that's troublesome, the mom would want to track that. And doing that in the middle of the night with a phone while you're holding a baby in one hand um, and the phone in the other can be hard. So what we, what we learned was these buttons need to be big. The screens can't have that much content on them. The, the questions need to be short and concise and have a single action on, on the screen at a time. Uh, or so the app needs to integrate with Alexa so you can just do it by voice. <laughs> exactly, voice control, <laughs> absolutely. We have designed things like that before, hands-free interfaces for sure. Um, well, it so sounds like was, the work you're doing is very, very exciting, and um, I love it that you're engaging patients. We're a big fan of that. And even though I was pushing you hard on, on trying to let us know how you know <laughs> that it works, it sounds like you're really comfortable that it works, and obviously you're Clients must be if they keep coming back. Um, so any advice for patients who might be listening and want to get uh, involved or any advice to other developers? I suppose some of those would be your mm -hmm. competitors on uh, how to engage patients. So first, advice for patients. How can they get involved? Sure. So um, to patients first, I just want to say thank you for, for letting us into your lives and helping us. Um, create these solutions for you and alongside you, really. Um, it's a great honor. Um, advice to them, because we had mentioned advocacy groups before. Um, I know there's a lot of them out there, but there are so many patients who just are not aware. Um, um, they're a great resource if you need the support and community. Um, please find them. You can find them large or small um, online. Um, to my colleagues, <laughs> my competitors, um, if you will, anyone who is creating um, healthcare solutions, please go outside of your four walls and talk to people. Um, patients are a wealth of advice, and we will um, um, we won't be able to help them unless we act, truly get to know who they are and what they need. Well, so there you go. Um, patients, contact your patient advocacy, advocacy groups and developers. Please do engage patients. And I want to thank you very much, Rebecca, for taking the time to join us and explain what user experience is and how it can uh, involving patients can uh, lead to human-centered solutions. So thank you very much, and good luck with all your projects. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.